Welcome to The Naked Podcaster. I'm your host, Jen Taylor. A huge thank you and shout out to NGBN TV for sponsoring this video podcast episode. On today's podcast, we have Olga Ward, born in Russia with alcoholism running rampant to the USA at 21 through the Peace Corps to an adoptive parent to a child with trauma, giving up her job and through research, she learned neurofeedback. It changed her child's life and now she helps others. Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Today I have on Olga Ward. How are you today? I am great, Jen. I'm super excited and a little nervous. You're kind of a big deal. <laughs> I don't think I'm a big deal. So it's the, it's all good. It's going to be fun. I want this to be super hard, but like at the end you should be like, wow, that was hard, but it was so fun. Like I, you know, so that's, that's the goal. Don't worry about that. I love your name because my name's Jennifer. It's the most popular name in like the last 5,000 years. Jennifer's the most popular name. So I love that it's different. I love your name. Yeah. It's Russian. <laughs> I'm from Russia. Exciting. And I do hear your uh, accent every once in a while. It's not much though. Not like I would have expected. So thank you. I used I used to work very hard on it because I would be very self-conscious. Everybody's like, where's your accent from? Where are you from? And then they kind of just take me on a tangent. <laughs> well, I'm from New England and I had an accent that was very Rhode Island. And in the U.S., it was really different. And I did the same thing. I didn't, I felt like somehow it labeled me or defined me to have that accent. So I worked hard. But if I talk to somebody from back there, it's all over with. So it's all good. <laughs> Your website is beavertonneurofeedback.com. It will be, that's a mouthful. It will be in the show notes, but I want to jump in and really talk about your website. So tell us all about it. So I live in Beaverton, Oregon, and that's kind of the name. Um, that's part of the name. And then neurofeedback is for some people that might be new and some people have heard of it. It's sort of like physical therapy for the brain or brain training. There's different concepts about that. So Beaverton neurofeedback is, you know, the two things that I define me <laughs> right now. So tell me about what the website is. Take me through kind of the process. I've been on it, but for people that haven't seen it, what is neurofeedback? How does it work? What do you do? Yeah, so um, I've spent a lot of time on the website uh, because neurofeedback is one of those things that some people have heard of it, some people experience it, but so many don't have any idea. Uh, it's like, you know, two friends are talking and one said, I have my back hurts. Like, well, you should see a chiropractor. The question is not, what is that? The question is, which one do you recommend? Or do you know somebody, you know, somebody local? Um, but if someone's strugg struggling um, in terms of their brain, um, maybe they're anxious or just feeling off or the memory is not like it used to be or they can't sleep. And the friend says, well, um, you, should, you should schedule a neurofeedback session with Olga. You're like, neuro what? <laughs> so um, part of it is um, educating people about how amazing neurofeedback is and because I've discovered it a few years ago and it definitely changed my life. So I want it to be well known, well accessible to people. It's good for um, people of all ages, um, small children to the elderly. Um, I prefer um, personally because of my story and because I'm a mom and I help my own children. I love working with children and families. I feel like if 
children get help with um, some issues that are dealing with at school, with relationships, with their peers, just struggling mentally, um, then that can set them on a better path um, going forward. So they don't have to wait until you're an adult to seek support. I can I ask a couple questions? Yeah. When I think about neural feedback, I'm familiar with um, some alternative therapies. And so, so this one I wasn't, but I get the, the concept. I have a child who's autistic. He mm -hmm. does not recognize facial cues. Mm. You know what I mean? So if you're, if you're, if he's with a group in his peers and they are like bored or irritated or he doesn't stop talking. And the other issue is that he just doesn't stop talking. So, yeah, I mean, and he doesn't recognize any of those social cues. At yeah, all. that's tough. Does this help people recognize it? So what it does, so there's different styles of neurofeedback. Um, and as the brain science and uh, technology continue to evolve, think about the smartphones we have today versus what we use as kids, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, <laughs> so the technology evolves, the brain science evolves, we're, we're still learning to understand. But the, the brand of neurofeedback I chose for my practice and I have personally the most success with is called Neurooptimal. So Neurooptimal is not something that would um, necessarily diagnose or label any particular quote, disorders. Uh, what it does is optimizes the brain to work at, its, at a better potential, right? So think of why, why do we go to the gym to work out? Um, you know, we don't think like, oh, I have this disorder, so I need to go work out at the gym. Um, we think, I want to be stronger. I, I'm embarrassed when I take so many flights of stairs and I am um, maybe out of breath easily, or I can't play with my kids. Uh, I get tired easily. Uh, it's really frustrating to me. Um, or I can't lift certain things. I have to ask for help constantly. Like we want, we, we go to the gym to work out to get stronger. We don't need a diagnosis. Um, the same thing for our brain. A brain is another organ that uh, sometimes gets knocked off and not functioning at its best. We don't know, could be birth trauma, sometimes concussions cause um, issues like organic trauma, childhood um, adverse childhood experiences, or just something's off in our brain. And brain is so amazing. Um, when it's not functioning at its best or, or some function is impaired, we're gonna have a like a whole bunch of issues. For some people, they feel um, anxious. For some, some people are very forgetful. Um, some people are just, you know, like your son is not picking up uh, social, social clues and that's very detrimental in the social settings and with friends and peers. Um, some people who had uh, traumatic experiences, the amygdala is on overdrive. It's like very, you feel very startled easily where it used to not be. Right. So all of those things, all of those functions are in our head, uh, in our brain, literally. So brain is a physical organ. Um, like veterans who um, go and have combat experience, often they'll come back the same. 
we know that. Um, what happened? You know, like they look healthy, they had physical exam and they're fine. Why are they all of a sudden angry? Why are they having nightmares? You know, all those things, relationship issues. Um, they start drinking heavily, um, sort of self-medicating, trying to calm themselves down. It's because trauma can uh, physically affect the brain and things happen. So um, it might be a little bit longer answer to you, but anytime anything is not working cohesively and like our brain is not working well, then we're going to have variety of symptoms and issues that we can label whatever but we know it starts up here well and anytime anyone's been through a trauma like i mean it can be a car accident it can be yes. a lot of, mm -hmm. like, there's a lot of different things uh, any one of them and something that might be a trauma to me is not necessarily a trauma to you so it varies from person to person but you're not our brains and bodies aren't designed to remain in that fight or flight yeah and trauma is not an event it's in the nervous system but you know what, at that time, it was a big deal. And you may uh, dismiss it all you want as a 20, 30, 40, 50 year old, but it happened and it stuck with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's just like when you talk to your kids about memories and they grew up in the same house, or like my sister and I talk and we're three years apart and my memories are absolutely correct. It's my perception, it's the lens that I viewed it with, but hers might be totally different. And if you and I went to a seminar for an hour and then went to lunch, I'd be like, really? I didn't even get that out of that seminar. We were sitting in the same thing. So it's amazing yes. things that stick sometimes with some people and not with others. So, I mean, th those are really simple um, examples. Now, one of the things that you talk about after going through this, the neurofeedback on the website um, with children specifically is that mm -hmm. more calm, less reactive, more settled, sleep better. And they've, I mean, all of the science just on sleep alone. Yes. If you can just, if that's all you do is just help reduce the stress and hormones so that they're sleeping better that alone would make an enormous difference yeah i always say like if you don't sleep well um your batteries are not charged and so then you're waking up you're not on full battery <laughs> um and so you might kids can be prone to meltdowns that they will talk back they don't want to get ready for school it's just really rough to get them ready to get them off the door it's really frustrating it's very um just difficult experience and then they then they show up to school they're you know they're underperforming <laughs> right yeah. and this is a little bit differently different <laughs> differently this is a little different than like emdr yes or um and i don't know i don't know how different is i know being not non-invasive and all natural those are things that people like there's no mm -hmm. city there's nothing exterior um you're actually training your brain differently um what is the process that's used like i know with emdr it's a motion yes yes okay and you know emdr used to be like this woo thing um you know, and not accepted and not recognized um, in, you know, just not too long ago. And now it's well accepted and people talk therapy alone some uh, often for very traumatic, very embedded um, experiences or even repressed um, 
memories, you know, does not work because you can talk yourself in circles and then you still feel bad. And you're like, why am I still jumpy when this happens? Or why do these smells uh, kind of set me off? Mm. What is happening? I can't, I can't rationalize it. So I can, you know, do talk therapy, but it just doesn't, doesn't really help com completely. So, um, ish, so modalities such as neurofeedback and EMDR. Um, there's many other ones that are coming as we are learning more about the brain and the trauma, becoming more trauma-informed, um, are being embraced. And they're really complementary to uh, traditional psychotherapy or counseling and talk therapy. Or uh, I see um, like talk therapy where you're feeling heard, being witnessed, being validated, um, acknowledged, maybe given some strategies. It's more of a top-down approach. Think about like that's prefrontal cortex. That's the last one to develop. We have to engage it. We have to understand where the downstairs brain, this primal part of the brain that, you know, toddlers have it. Sometimes it's called toddler brain versus boss brain, right? Toddler brain, um, sometimes, uh, like for example, if, if you are hungry, if you didn't get enough sleep, um, something happened, you're in your toddler brain, <laughs> downstairs brain, right, easily. And then your boss brain just cannot control that toddler. You cannot focus. You have to have that hierarchy of needs. You have to have that good baseline, good sleep, good, good diet, you know, um, you know, all those emotional regulations. And then the uh, prefrontal cortex can engage for think about the child who didn't sleep well, didn't get breakfast, maybe got beaten, you know, whatever happened to them, you put them in the chair with a notebook and have them listen to the teacher and learn. They're not going to be as effective as students, right? So, um, so um, things like uh, EMDR or neurofeedback, they're working on uh, more like a bottom-up approach as talk therapy or coaching or lecturing, you know, it's all bot um, top-down. Uh, and I think they're often the best combined together. Um, it's good to do them at the same time. I am never going to discount talk therapy because I think it's vital, but limited. And that's been my experience. And I, so I think it's always good in conjunction with other, mm -hmm. other modalities. This is interesting. I'm just going to throw this out there. I know a lot of people associate trauma with veterans, which we should. That's a huge yeah. part of society that's been affected. But yeah. it's so completely not limited to that. Although, because the military has funding, I read an article recently where like they had a $4 million plan. All of these vets came back with PTSD that was so severe and talk therapy that what they were using was not helping. So mm -hmm. had this, and I'm sure they've had several contracts to open it up to different things like acupuncture and meditation. And so, although I love that you said it was woo, -woo at one time and now it's much more mainstream. Yeah. And I think that like, thank goodness, for those veterans who came back and were like, look, we need to try something else and I'll try anything. Cause when you hit the point where you'll try anything, right. It opens your mind up. And when you have the funding for it, that proves, Oh, maybe the woo woo actually has a lot of science behind it. it. I think that that was a lot of the groundbreaking work that was done in these areas. And there's 
so vital. They're so important. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. So yeah, it's not just absolutely veterans is a big part, but we're learning like first responders will often have trauma. Uh, nurses would have trauma. Um, um, firefighters, police officers, um, any, any first responders. Um, but children with adverse experience, um, like my, like my daughter who we adopted from foster care had tons of trauma. Um, so talk therapy, uh, can only go so far. And that's why I'm so excited about it. Cause I did foster care for 12 years and then taught foster care. And we talked about that before we met, you know, I, I was, I talked to somebody recently who said, you know, I never wanted to take in a dog from a shelter because it was broken. And oh, I, yeah. Right. Okay. Cause you don't know the problems that you're going to get. And I'm like, yeah, well imagine that in a human. Cause that's a lot of what foster care is, except that, you know, I did a good job parenting. You've done a good job parenting. We try our hardest. Our kids are still broken because <laughs> like we make mistakes and then there's the world out there. They get bullied. They get sexually. Yes. So I think, you know, once you realize that everyone's broken, it's just a matter of who did it and, and taking in these broken kids. What's the difference, you know, between yeah. that or giving birth to a child that will will be broken in a different way. You are still parenting a child who is broken. So I'm just going to do that shout out for foster care because it's so totally worth it. But holy crap, is it hard? So it is hard. Yeah. <laughs> Ask me how I know it's hard. <laughs> Let's go back in time and start with your story though, because your story led you to foster care and adopting and to what you're doing now with the neurofeedback. I mean, your story is so connected all the way through. So jump back. Russia. Yeah, so I was born in Russia, um, born in Russia, and um, have generation of um, also intergenerational trauma and um, excessive alcohol consumption on the men's side. I uh, an uncle who died from, uh, um, you know, alcoholism, just his liver was just completely destroyed. Um, my father, and grandpa, his dad, were alcoholics, and uh, mental health just wasn't um, embraced. I, I remember my my cousin who had depression and some other issues um, was struggling, and my mom and I went to visit her in the hospital, and my dad is like, ah, she should just go for a run, you know, and you know, this is this is just ridiculous, like you don't need to sit around and be sad, you know, this, you, this is how you fix yourself and just complete underappreciation what mental health means and um, not recognizing that, dismissing it. In the meantime, my own father was struggling with a lot of issues himself and his way of dealing with it is, uh, yeah, sometimes going for a run and, and most of the time it's drinking heavily and pretending that there's no issue there but also struggling with a lot of angry, angry uh, outbursts. Um, I grew up in a family where I didn't know if my, my father would come home and be in a good mood and would be jokey and happy um, or he'll come home and uh, I still remember like maybe garbage would be not taken out and he would just completely disproportionate rage um, 
uh, where things would be broken and thrown around and I would just be completely frozen in fear. But if you do that inconsistently, you don't know what you're going to get. You, you hear the footsteps and you just go, <laughs> what am I going to get this time? Mm -hmm. So it's pretty, pretty stressful um, growing up. But, you know, that's they're your parents and that's all you know. And the society is just, you know, like you're supposed to love and respect your parents and you only have one set and this is what you got be grateful it wasn't until i moved to the u.s and um, married a wonderful man and i saw completely a different way of living i was like i don't think what i grew up with was normal or healthy so yeah i've done a lot of healing i've done some talk therapy but i always and talk therapy counseling was helpful in that it identified, allowed me to um, understand that what I grew up with was not okay. And my struggles or my insecurities that I sort of inherited had a lot to do with that. So sort of like name it to tame it approach worked, but um, it wasn't until we decided to um, adopt a child from foster care locally that my trauma got a lot more aggravated uh, those buttons were pushed <laughs> you know and that's when i needed to uh, revisit uh, an experienced trauma therapist to work on myself i want to go back first because i read an article that you wrote about pancakes and i know people can find that but give us that i loved that example of as far as you never know what you're going to get because one day pancakes yeah can be fine and go ahead, jump into that and then I want you to um, take us through a little bit deeper on what the interaction was like with your dad and how your mom handled it what was her part in that and mm. then I want to talk about how you came to the US because I don't know these things but go back and tell me about the pancakes I read about that yeah the pancakes I that was one of the issues that I had to work uh, in therapy through um, I think I was about five-ish year old. Uh, we lived in this tiny little apartment where um, the kitchen was shared, a community kitchen, and it was late in the evening. And I decided, mom, I want some pancakes. And she said, it's late in the evening. I don't want to do it. Please, please, please. Mom gives in, but she doesn't want to use it, the community kitchen. Maybe something was going on. So she brings it in this tiny little, like kind of a condo one one room apartment that we had we all shared there was not like multiple bedrooms it's just one room for everyone for all three of us um so she she gets the griddle going and uh, you know inevitably just smoke started coming out of the griddle and then the door the front door opens and i see my you know i was five so i see uh, a big figure of my dad coming in and his eyes go really big and then I see his eyes turn red like fury red he sees the smoke and it sets him off and I don't know I don't know if I remember the all the exact details but I remember the bowl of batter from the pancakes ended up on the uh, upside down um, on the carpet uh, my mom was crying and pleading him to stop. He was furious that she did this. And I was instantly, it's 
all my fault. It's all my fault. I'm so stupid. Mom said no when I first asked. I should have just accepted it. See what, what I did? I created this disaster. My little dress, I still remember. That's how funny memories work is. I remember what I was wearing that day because it was so impacting, uh, yeah. you know, so traumatic and so scary. Um, I remember wearing this little yellow dress and the batter got splattered on my dress. So I put myself, uh, put my face in the, you know, in, in the corner. I was crying. I was really upset and I was just really, really blaming myself the entire time. Um, so, you know, the next day, uh, the, uh, everything got cleaned up and then, uh, my parents acted like nothing happened. There was no, like, there was no revisiting of the story and uh, making it straight that it's not your fault. It was just like, well, let's just pretend it didn't happen. That's kind of, that was pretty typical in my family. And my dad's way of apologizing um, wasn't checking in with me, how that impacted me or taking responsibility. It was just, you know, make, make, making jokes until I, I started laughing. But it just created kind of a confusion, like, was that real? Is that normal? <laughs> um, I remember growing up, um, anytime my dad had huge explosions like that, there would be no uh, acknowledgement or apology afterwards. It would be like dead silence. Everybody would be in shock. Things would get cleaned up. And then, and then my dad, little by little, would just start cracking jokes. And then I, I thought it was not funny because of like, wait, this big thing just happened and I'm still shaking and I'm still scared, but you're cracking jokes. I guess that's, that was his way of smoothing things out. Right. What, what was your mom like through this whole upbringing and with the alcohol? Did she come from an alcoholic background? Did she participate? She did. She didn't. She didn't have a lot of family support. And uh, at that time, the societal norms was, um, the divorce was bad. Um, it was also, it would put her at a great economical disadvantage if she did. Um, we didn't have a place to live and just taking me and leaving me would not only be supported uh, by family and friends, but also she would just have nowhere to go. So she felt stuck. So she just made, you know, she plead, usually pleaded, helped in the cleanup. Um, I don't remember that she, and I would sometimes hear her cry in a bedroom and feel like I'm so like helpless. I wish I could save mom. I uh, inadvertently took on a lot of responsibility for my mom's happiness. Um, and uh, my mom allowed that too. Um, you know, she didn't have like a, a social worker to go talk about how it's not wrong. Um, she probably didn't even realize what it, um, I mean, she was trying to survive too. Uh, but um, in my developing young brain, it was like, I was also surviving. But I also, as a very empathetic, um, sensitive girl, I would just feel like I need to help my mom out out by cleaning and cooking and um you know just kind of 
and, and, and being her sounding board to no end, that was probably was very hard <laughs> on me. Yeah. Um, equally hard as dad's uh, angry explosions because my mom would just kind of dump her frustrations out and I would be that therapist with no training or experience and not knowing what to do with that information except for just absorb that pain and sit with it. It's so hard when you're a kid and I, I mean, in my experience, I remember thinking, this is not how things are supposed to be, but you don't have anything to compare it to. That's exactly right. Right? You just know, like, is this the way it's supposed to be? Because this sucks. This doesn't seem, little kids, it doesn't feel right to them when there's abuse or neglect or like the angry outbursts or the mom dumping stuff little kids intuitively know like this isn't right but they don't have the vocabulary or the life experience or a comparison they don't have you know our 10 year old sometimes i'm like you you don't have the life experience to know what you're talking about that's not a bad thing you shouldn't have the life experience at 10 to know that information but we know that because we're responsible adults but you know with your mom having nowhere to go and who knows what she knew like there's no resources there's nothing that she could do so you know yeah and the, the attitude about the mental health at that time or what is expected well you know my husband makes a living that's why we have food in the fridge so i should put up with that um, kind of thing. And then, of course, as a child, you don't know any other parents. <laughs> um, and you love your parents. You want to make it work. And you are also sort of, the world revolves around you. So dad's big reaction and uh, things being thrown and the like, yelling and screaming and things being broken, it's my fault. It's because I asked for pancakes or it's because I um, I, I caused him to act like that because I forgot to empty the garbage. You know, those are the things that you, you, you think it's all my fault. If I just wasn't so flawed all the time, my parents would behave better. <laughs> and that sucks because it's not true. But yeah, that's pretty normal. So you are coming with a lot of baggage from that. How did you feel about drinking yourself when you got older? Um, yeah, I had to sort of, um, play around with what feels right, like how much drinking is okay. And I don't, I kind of went from, I don't like anybody who drinks to, you know what, everybody has a choice and it's not the alcohol. That's the problem is how people use it. So I'm kind of lightweight and I drink occasionally, very, very occasionally, but yeah, I don't have the same, and maybe it's because I've done a lot of work and a lot of thinking, a lot of processing, a lot of healing around that subject, mm -hmm. but yeah, it used to be a trigger. Oh yeah, it was for me too, that's why I asked. I, I didn't want to be around anyone that drank at all, and then I realized I actually like to drink sometimes, so I can't really judge someone else, but it is, it's one, how frequent and how much, and the other thing is how they react because not everyone reacts like your dad reacted yeah yeah and i i've managed to find healthy relationships and healthy surroundings where alcohol was not abused like it was in my family that's and, a hard thing to get past though huh 
Yeah. Yeah. That people can have a glass of wine and they're not going to hurt me right afterwards. <laughs> so that was a lot of conditioning that they're still nice people and, um, you know, drinking does not have to control your behavior. What made you decide to come to the U.S.? How did that happen? How did you get a visa? And like, I don't know how any of that works from Russia. So jump ahead a little bit because you're not five anymore. You've gotten older. You've grown up in this household. It remains the same. Yeah, pretty much. And then what happened with coming to the U.S.? How old were you? Well, I was actually uh, uh, an adult. I was 21 when I moved. Uh, I moved to because um, I made friends who were Peace Corps volunteers and they were teaching at the um, college that I was attending. Um, they were teaching English and we became dear friends. Um, and they, at the end of their term, they said, you know, Olga, we really like you as a person. We could, you, we could host you as a foreign exchange students. You can live with us rent-free for a year. Um, there's a community college that, nearby that you can attend and just kind of learn it, you know, improve your English and just see what American life is all about. So of course I jumped on that opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and as I was working through that process, um, I think I had already gone through four years of college. I had the fifth year because um, it was a five-year five -year college. It was just a five-year program um, of the degree I was trying to get. Uh, it was at the end of the fourth year, and my plan was to come back at that time and finish the degree, but when the college dean and other administration found out that I went to the U.S., uh, they pretty much expelled me from, from college. Uh, really? Yeah, I I don't know if it's jealousy or how dare you go somewhere else. Um, I have no idea. Things are just, they were complicated. Um, so, and sort of it's kind of cut me off and I, and then I ended up uh, moving to the, to the U.S., staying with this um, uh, host family, loving it. Um, in my first year of college, uh, I ended up meeting my future husband at that time um, and then staying. So once the host year was over and you realized you couldn't go or it didn't make sense to go back, you yes. were able to extend your time and stay in the U.S. Was that, did that feel good? What was it like for you when, during that year, when you came here? Was it extremely eye-opening? Very, very different. It was a huge culture shock, obviously. My head hurt because even though I was already studying English and German at that time in Russia, um, I know I wasn't speaking 100% <laughs> um, foreign language for me. So, I remember at some point I switched from thinking in Russian to thinking in English and all my new friends were speaking English. Uh, my host family spoke English. Uh, all the college professors were speaking English. So it was just quite a bit of an immersion. Um, so a lot of different, I mean, different foods, you know, just different culture, different ways of behaving and 
yeah, I loved all of it. It was, it was good for my growth. It was good to also get away from my family and kind of observe how other families function and live. That was also quite a bit eye-opening. Um, oh, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty. Having ever gone to Russia, I don't know what that that I know the culture shock is huge. I had a foreign exchange student from Germany and I remember when she first came to us, we wanted to pick up cereal that she would like to eat and like shampoo and conditioner, just normal stuff, right? Yeah. And we went into the aisle and she was completely overwhelmed. She's like, we have five choices of cereal. There's five. Yes, that was my experience too. I remember going to a pet store and thinking like, Cubans don't have the, that many choices where I live. Uh, why there's all these, you know, types of cat food and dog dog food and all the accessories. Wow, this is crazy. <laughs> Heaven on earth. Yeah, it's a huge culture shock. And then there's the whole, um, like, family dynamic that you were learning. Yeah, yeah. But I also grew up in a, in a trend, kind of a transitionary time uh, where... I literally stood in bread lines yeah. uh, as a kid for my family when my parents worked. Uh, I remember going down to the store and um, there would be this long line and the store may not open for hours, but you just, you know, hold your place in line and maybe go play and mark the person that you're supposed to be behind. And then hours later, you get a loaf of bread and a chunk of cheese, you know, or something, something like that. And then I felt like I was providing for my family. So it wasn't so much the money because, um, you know, it was affordable, but it was just the supplies were really short. It was um, when Russia was changing from, you know, socialist society to kind of quasi-capitalist <laughs> society. And uh, there's a lot of supply issues. Yeah, that was very interesting. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you, people complain standing in line in Costco, this is too long. And I was like, you have no idea. <laughs> and that's the thing. We have no idea. I mean, like, we don't have that to compare it to. That's a, that's a huge difference. And we've ne if you've never had to experience it, you can't even imagine or relate to what that would be like. Let's jump ahead a little bit. So you were able to stay. You're staying in the U.S., you're finishing your degree. I want to know what your degree was in, and tell me about meeting your husband. Yeah, so um, when I moved to the U.S. and started attending this local college, um, I had an intention, I think my host family had an intention that I would learn as much as I can uh, about the U.S. culture, improve my English, you know, take up some classes and then go back. And meeting my husband and staying was not part of their expectation of me. I felt like I let them down. Seriously, there was a lot of like shame in that. And um, especially the host mom, she was very disapproving. So I sort of, um, it, it, it kind of drove us apart because of that. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't have any big expectations. I didn't expect to stay, although my parents really hoped that I would because they wanted, they wanted to see me flourish and they knew that my little hometown and our society 
was not the best for me. Um, so it would be a great opportunity, but I wasn't sure. So uh, my host family had different plans for me. Um, I don't know if it's like the sort of white privilege mentality. <laughs> like you need to um, get, we're, we're letting you stay, we're feeding you so that we can turn you over kind of thing and uh, take credit for um, keeping you here and sort of acculturating you. Um, and that's a gift back to Russia. And I sort of failed failed them. That's how I felt. That's very odd. Okay. So she wasn't happy. They weren't happy that you met someone and that you wanted to stay longer, even with the situation in Russia and the university there. Yes. Yes. It was, it was just not, you know, they were very, um, strict, traditional, conservative Christians. And I was Christian too, but, you know, but I didn't have the same kind of rigid rules about what must happen. Um, and I certainly wanted what, what's going to be best for me long-term rather than like, I think somewhat they treated me like this little project yeah. and it didn't pan out like they planned. Um, and so they were very disappointed. Um, and I felt like I was disappointing them, but I, but I also wanted to do what was right for me. <laughs> So you met your husband, you guys ended up getting married. I want to wrap that part of your life up by asking you if you were concerned at all in getting married because of your father and that relationship and that anger, or were you not? I had these strange thoughts that because my, besides my father being an alcoholic and often aggressive alcoholic, explosive, physically violent. Um, he was also, uh, he had like a series of affairs going on on the side constantly. And I had this irrational thought, what if I turned out like my father? Oh, okay. Uh, like, because I have his genes. What if I do this to this very nice young man who like, adores me and thinks I'm perfect and that and then he finds out I'm not because that's how I felt about myself like I had these thoughts what if I do that like like if I was like what do I really want to go cheat on him somewhere like no but still but the fact that my dad did that could happen like I just felt I felt like part of part of me you know that hereditary issue is is with me and so I'm broken because my father was broken yeah so that definitely happened you thought you were gonna become your dad and not marry someone like your dad because that's where I my thought process was going I know that's normally that's you know I can see because a lot of um, women would can relate to that but yeah no, with me like I would turn out like this monster I mean, we all process in our own way. So I think that that's fascinating. You got past it and you guys got married. Yeah, we did. You, you got into foster care and I mean, this was life changing, right? This whole situation was life changing and that's where the business came from. So yeah, well, we, we, um, you know, a few years after we got married, we had our son, the old fashioned way, our bio kiddo. Um, and 
the one thing or the other happened and then we never wanted to have just one child we want to have more than one but things were happening with my family and i was distracted by um, my parents divorce um and some other drama that was going on i was highly stressed and then had job changes and then after i think so my my son was about six or seven we were like where are we gonna have a second one we're like why we only have one <laughs> um and then my husband it was my husband who suggested like well you know have you ever thought of adopting <laughs> because you know it doesn't have to be a bio um and we don't want to raise two single children so far apart um and i thought well he kind of threw it out there he's like i want you to think about that and i thought well i actually like that thought i don't know why i didn't think about that before he's and then he said we can probably attend um, one of those like free orientations and like learn about it we'll go to department of human services you know um and and hear what they say so we made an appointment and then i remember three three hours later we came out what do you think i think we should do it <laughs> so that started our journey um and uh, we live in oregon so it's not a foster to adopt state they say um, if you're planning on just fostering foster but if you're planning on adopting don't take foster children because so many of them are going to be reunited with their um, bio families as when the family just get their um, issues together and um, get some support that they need um, so we just went on the adoption track uh, and when when you adopt as you know jen uh, uh, you actually have license to license to parent because you go through so much so much training so much readings fingerprinting, background check, medical exam, um, house check, everything. You provide information about your finances and your insurance, everything. Um, it was quite a process. It was very helpful. Um, and then we ended up having our daughter place. Um, it was probably uh, about three or so after our daughter placement, we started doing uh, respite uh, foster care, which is later but we we started with the adoption first well that was jumping in so how how close in age is she to your son so they're a year apart okay so she was about six or so when you adopted her uh so well by by the time the adoption um screening process and the training was over and our daughter was selected for us and placed with us she was eight my son was nine at that time now for people who first of all kudos for wanting to do that that it's wonderful and i've done it and you know it's a it's a really tough experience i used to get frustrated like you have to fill out an application to go fishing <laughs> yes get a permit yeah but anybody can have a child and i don't think that we should have to go through a process to have our own children but when you're in foster care and you're taking these kids from really bad situations you're like oh my gosh it, it's such a skewed system, you know, of having children. I don't have the answer to that at all. Because um, I don't think the answer is more government and more control. But 
it's it's you're you're taking on these kids that have been through an awful lot and that's frustrating to say the least you adopted her how much were they able to disclose because she was eight so that was older about her situation because they they try to disclose as much as they can they don't want failed placements having said you don't always know or sometimes it doesn't look as bad as it actually is when they do a placement so what was that like yeah we well the we saw a cute picture um of her on the website and um i saw the description everything was kind of spun positively said she had a lot of the adverse experiences but she's uh, she's a fighter she's overcome a lot um you know she's got the strength when she does um definitely does um uh, but it was i kind of paused it's like well what what is it that you know <laughs> she's overcome so much of um we were presented with some paperwork that was concerning and i won't go to too much details to preserve my child's privacy but um but there were some things that were concerning and we brought them to uh, to the caseworker and our adoption worker for discussion and again everything was kind of like oh that's no longer a problem she's not she doesn't do those she doesn't have those behaviors anymore we worked on them and so just like she's she's good to go <laughs> um yeah so it wasn't until she was placed with us that probably a month we had a one month of honeymoon where the behaviors was best and i was like oh my gosh we're so lucky like like this is perfect <laughs> we i don't need to do much uh, but probably a month after when the child a became more comfortable um to show the behaviors and b it was we had a we had to do a court appearance that triggered her tremendously into trauma mode uh, she had to kind of the parental rights weren't fully terminated at that time uh, and so she had to do a testimony of some adverse experiences that she went through and that put put that put those experiences in the for, forefront of her mind and uh, i remember the very next day after that court appearance the teacher called and said what happened you know she um she punched somebody she's just not herself what, what what's going on so I was like, right away I knew, <laughs> like, oh, okay. We just had, you know, a court appearance. She had to uh, share about some things that she's gone through. Uh, it's probably why she's having a hard day at school. And then those hard days were just kept coming and coming and we're not letting up. And yeah, to the point that I had to seek therapy <laughs> for myself because I was starting to get secondary trauma from just her behaviors between um, big angry outbursts that were triggered for me because of my father um, throwing things sometimes running away um, saying really mean things to me when I would just make a simple request it was like ah, I'm over my head I did not realize this is gonna be like this this is hard um, and all that book knowledge that you get um, just kind of goes out the window <laughs> when the kid is that dysregulated on a daily basis. 
Well, that's, and that's the thing about foster care, right? Is like you get all of this tremendous training, like tremendous. Yes. But practical knowledge and use, even with all, I mean, that it is important to have that, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily help you as much as you think it's going to in practical use because every situation is different and there's no possible way to give a training. Yes. You yeah. have to go through it by fire. There, there's no other way. There's no other way to present it. Yeah. If you don't know what your particular child will need and how to tailor the experience or the knowledge toward what your particular child, getting all this training and reading all the books is like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> you can only get so much. Yeah, absolutely. And a child, like you know, from us, we can go to a seminar again for an hour and then eat lunch and get totally different things out of it. There is no way to determine what is going to stick with a child, what is going to trigger, like there's no way. So you do, you do the fire hose and then it's like throwing you into immersion again and figuring out you have to put so many pieces together so i understand you experiencing well your past traumas being triggered that is so common in foster yes. because a lot of us that have done foster care are doing it because like we relate to these kids we were kind of one of these kids mm -hmm. in one way or another and then yeah. you realize that all of your stuff is going to come up and be triggered so you you have to help this child while you're trying to help yourself and that's how you talked to me about that you started going to therapy for that yeah yeah i just you know when you're trying to be a good parent whatever that means to this um child who has a ton of trauma and attachment issues and is has all these big behaviors um after a while you're like I don't know, I'm struggling and I'm starting to not like her anymore. And yeah, <laughs> and then they feel it, right? So at some point, I uh, I think I probably yelled or screamed or something. And then my husband's like, I think you need some support yourself. <laughs> no, it's my first reaction. No, I just need her to feel better. Uh, then I'll be okay. He's like, no, I think you need some support. <laughs> Um, so I, I found a therapist who had, um, specific training in foster care and attachment issues. Um, and so, and I came to her and I said, this is what my daughter's doing at home on a daily basis. This is why I'm such a mess. And she goes, let's start with you <laughs> because I think if we just get you to a good place and those behaviors are not going to be such such a huge trigger for you. And then you'll be more effective in implementing those parenting strategies and connecting with her and seeing, not seeing her as this big firecrackers in your house, but with more compassion, like, like you want to. And so we started with me. We started unpacking some of the trauma I had. We did um, a few sessions of EMDR, which was awfully hard for me, awfully hard. Uh, I almost like gave up, <laughs> like I'm not doing any more of that. And then, um, then the therapist recommended um, neurooptimal neurofeedback. Uh, of course, I, I was just ready to, because I was ready to give up, that felt like 
a reprieve and I loved it. Like the very first session felt so soothing, so relaxing. Like I can do this all day. I don't need to reprocess and rehash something really bad that happened in my childhood. I can just sit and, you know, relax with this Zen-like music. This is easy. <laughs> um, but what I noticed probably after uh, about, well, I, I was relaxed right away, even after the first session, but it was probably three or four sessions in that I noticed when my daughter, I remember a distinct incident when my daughter lied to me and I would be normally get really upset. And later I learned because I'm so sensitive, um, if something happened to me like that, I stay upset for a while, which is not very effective when you're trying to reset for the, for the sake of the child and be come out strong and with energy and want to give them another, um, um, another opportunity to try again, right? If you're still stewing, if you're still kind of wounded from that experience. So uh, probably after about three or four sessions, I remember um, we had a morning incident where she just lied to me and it was very obvious she lied to me uh, I still got upset um, I kind of put that on pause and went to take a shower by the time I got out of the shower I felt like whatever was um, affecting me whatever was gripping me in anger over that lie was kind of washed away in the shower um, which never happened before uh, because I would come out of the shower before and I'd still be stewing mad and then, you know, kind of confrontational with her about um, that lie or that behavior that she did. And I felt like, wow, it just kind of rolled off of me. Is that how like normal people operate? <laughs> like, I, I know we can't control negative um, experiences or whatever other people do. But boy, it feels so good not to have it stuck with you for hours or days. It just felt like it just kind of washed off and we were able to have a conversation. She apologized. We talked about how she could have um, um, dealt with this differently and that she does not need to lie. I understand that she lies to protect herself. That's her part of her trauma. Lying is not something she does to hurt me by any means, but that's what initial initially I felt like it but my rational brain came um, um, was able to operate effectively so um, because I was calmer and I was like wow I love it and I had several more of those where my daughter did what she did and I would not like it I would be initially upset by it but not to the same extent and then I would able to regroup myself so much faster and I thought, oh my goodness, I've done a lot of counseling before. I knew I wanted to be that way and always felt like something was broken. Why do I stay so upset for so long? Because it's not serving me, it's not serving, and right now my daughter needs me to reset and, and show that I'm there for her, that I can forgive, we can discuss the situation, and we can move on until the next thing <laughs> happens, right? How long was it before you started getting her into therapy? Because this, this affects you in a huge way. You ended your career. You, yes. I mean, it was a big deal. Let's, I want to transition into getting her into therapy and how, because I'd like to end on that happy note where mm -hmm. 
this was so pivotal for you in your healing that you got her into it for her healing. And then it was like, oh my gosh, I need to get this to more people. It was a huge transition. Exactly. Well, the big aha moments is when I felt like I was able to bounce back from negative uh, experiences so much faster and, or some experiences just stop bothering me altogether. And I thought, this is amazing. And then um, I realized that Neurooptimal is something that is, is so effective. Uh, I, had, I had tried other types of neurofeedback before that didn't help me as much. And I learned the, that within three or four sessions, like this is something different. And yeah. so I started doing my research um, and then I learned that I could rent a machine for home use. And of course I did, I got the unlimited plan and, um, it was pretty easy. It's kind of a pretty, it's a very sophisticated piece of technology, but it's as user-friendly as a smartphone that a five-year-old can use. So, um, I brought the machine home and I was continued using it on myself because I wanted to get stronger and more resilient in my own nervous system and my own brain. Um, I started giving my, um, uh, daughter sessions um, very regularly and then uh, my son who was also struggling with some anxiety issues um, it helped everybody that I used it on and then my next step is I need to give I need to more people need to do this more people are struggling like I have been and this this is like solving so many of our problems and making um, making us all better, a better family, a more harmonious family, less screaming and throwing things going on. We're getting along better. We're letting um, less stuff bother us and just kind of be more in tune with each other. Um, it was really impressive that my daughter's sleep started improving. Um, she used to go through the house and constantly, quote, accuse me of scaring her, even if I, I was just being in my home. Uh, walking by her or doing my stuff around her and she'd be constantly she would jump and say, like, oh you scared me it's because her that PTSD that nervous system was so on hyper vigilant hyper alert anything like that would just set her off um, and that with um, after several neurofeedback sessions she was she stopped jumping that's like <laughs> that almost felt like um, self self uh, self uh, selfishly um comforting to me that she wasn't doing that anymore i was like we need to keep going um so yeah her uh, nightmares went down significantly so uh, this is a child who wasn't sleeping very well and we've tried uh sound machine we tried worry box we tried essential oils we tried things like melatonin and even prescription sleeping medication 